0: All right, Espen Bartleda, thank you for coming to the Modern India India, and this uh, conversation about the UN Security Council, Norway in the Council, and not least India in the Council, where we coincidentally will join and take seats together starting January 1st, in other words, in five weeks. When uh, Rina asked me to uh, facilitate this event and uh, for ideas about who to invite, I could think of no one better than yourself not only because of your merits within the Foreign Service, as well as the Ministry of Defense, but also with your background from NUPI, where you headed the UN program, as well as, not least, your tenure at the World Economic Forum. Because after all, this is also an event with an eye to business. And you are among Klaus Schwab's Davos men, we can say, having spent years there as a managing director. Isn't that right? That's correct, yes. And I'm very pleased to be here. So thank you for the invitation. Mm So, uh, we are five weeks away from taking seat at the tallest table in the world, together with the largest democracy in the world, India. What is the potential for these two democracies, with all their differences and geographical cultural
1: distance, to collaborate in the UN Security Council? Well, I think it's, uh, it's uh, quite uh, enormous uh, potential, because we have – despite all the fact that we are far apart geographically. and. Uh, to put it mildly, very different in size and historical background. India and Norway have, in many occasions, actually found that we have a lot of common ground in our perspectives on the world. We both believe in multilateralism. We believe in a rules-based order. We believe in democracy. India is, after all, the biggest democracy on the planet and is quite important in a time where democracies are banning in parts of the world. Uh, And I think that we will be able to do a lot together, particularly if we so plan and if we uh, look for where our agendas um, are adjacent and where agendas can be brought together. So I think that this will be an, uh, an important feature. We are experienced countries in the council. India is now taking this seat for the eighth time in the history of the Council, Norway for the fifth time. So I think both proves that we are countries who take the UN very seriously and are ready to take our role at the helm when we are called to by the majority of the member states. Thank you. Thank you very much for these opening
0: remarks. Um, Now, you mentioned that we are both there for the eighth and fifth time. The last time Norway was at the Council was approximately 20 years ago. Uh, Much has happened in the world since then. to say. It mildly. Uh, let me start by relating to the most recent uh, events, uh, namely the U.S. presidential election. Uh, the current um, uh, inhabitant of the White House uh, will depart more or less a couple of weeks after we take a seat at the council, uh, being succeeded by Joe Biden. Uh, what are your thoughts about the potential of U.S.-Norway, and for that matter, trilateral relationship between U.S.-Norway and India? in light of the fact that uh, joe biden will now be the us president coming 20 january
1: well you know with the with the coming of joe biden who is an experienced foreign policy actor a democrat and a believer in multilateral solutions we will have uh, almost a 180 degrees turn particularly in style and partly also in content but particularly in style i think the 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 instinct now from america will be to try to work with partners and friends and allies uh, where they can, and, uh, and if need we go it alone only where necessary. Uh, and I think that uh, this will um, significantly improve the possibilities for finding common agendas between Norway and the US and India and the US and maybe Norway and the, India and the US together. This matters. I mean, I've experienced from the Council both under less internationalists and more internationalist uh, leaders in the US, and it does actually matter. Mm. That said, I also want to say that there are certain megatrends that will not go away. I mean, the role of America and the role of the West is going down anyway. Its relative importance in the world is being reduced, not increased. And back last time we were in the council, it was on its way up. Now it's a little bit on its way down. Uh, China has emerged over these last 20 years as an extremely important player, the second-largest economy in, in nominal terms, the largest economy in purchasing power parity. Uh, by the way, if you look at purchasing power parity, India is number three. Uh, number six in nominal, but uh, number three. So India is an important player in an important region because most people in the world live in Asia. Uh, you know, half of the world and beyond, half of the uh, world are Asians, A lot of them are Indians and Chinese. And in a world where the question increasingly is how do we manage to rise to China, a partnership with India is particularly interesting for those of us who believe in the things we believe in. So I think that uh, that backdrop uh, of uh, the West and China not always seeing eye to eye is in itself an interesting topic for an ongoing conversation with India. Thank you so much. And
0: uh, now you mentioned China before I got to it. Mm-hmm. I was intending to do so, and here I had to uh, reveal uh, my personal background. Uh, being a Norwegian diplomat since the mid-'90s, my very first post was uh, Beijing. Mm. That was a life-transforming experience. And uh, I never regret going there for my first post, I have to be honest to say. Now, um, the two largest countries in the world are neighbors. They have different social-political models, different histories. They share, of course, the common reality of being huge. But that's about where the similarities end in many ways. Now, uh, India being a democracy, like Norway, like the United States, like uh, France and Britain, the other permanent members from the West, uh, and you might add Russia. Uh, Now, is there a danger of having sort of – uh, us-against-them approach to the work in the UN in general and the Security Council in particular. Namely, by definition, as a point of departure, the world's democracies are up against the non-democratic states. And if that is the case, what role can Norway play to modify that
1: unfortunate point of
0: departure? So I think,
1: the, that's a very important question uh, that permeates uh, international relations, actually. How do you, how do you balance between dealing with those issues that clearly requires collective action of all, on the one hand, and those where you need to take a clear stand also on the systemic nature of other countries. So, uh, you know, to the first category belongs issues like global health and, and climate, because you can't fix, you simply cannot deal with health only for half of the world. You need to deal with global public health, We're living in a time of pandemic. Hopefully, we'll be moving out of that pandemic. That has to be done collectively because... The, the uh, you know, COVID will be there until the last person is vaccinated or, the, or, or, or we have some kind of, uh, of uh, uh, herd immunity or whatever it is, and that requires cooperation. The global... We only got one planet, so climate requires serious cooperation regardless of political system. Then on the other hand, you have issues like human rights and democracy and tolerance and so on, where there will be differences. So I think a, a modern foreign policy will be able to balance this in such a way that you don't force, uh, a sort of block thinking, on issues where it doesn't belong. We should not go back to the Cold War as we knew it when when, when I grew up. Uh, but on the other hand, that you are able to stay firm on things that you hold true and important in uh, in international relations. And with the, we were talking about the you know the the fact that we now get a, a precedent. Uh, much more prone to work internationally in Joe Biden. I think that also means that there will be an expectation for the rest of us who are democratic, law-abiding countries with a strong focus on human rights that we also stand up when necessary on those issues. So that very positive news in my personal perspective that we now have Biden doesn't mean that all these issues go away. But it means that there is a larger potential for cooperate with the like-minded uh, countries because the US will increasingly come across as a like-minded country. On India, I would say that I think there is another mega trend, which is that the US and India are coming more and more together. Um, Modi, uh, of course, as a self-declared Hindu nationalist, uh, had a very close relationship to Trump, and they had these uh, uh, rallies uh, both in Gujarat. And in Texas, which uh, I, th- I think the Indian press has said uh, somewhat jokingly, it was uh, how howdy Trump and uh, namaste Biden, uh, sorry, namaste um, uh, uh, Modi. Yeah. But, uh, 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 but um, I don't think that will change the fact that the general trajectory is that India is more and more working with Western countries. It will <laughs> remain non aligned in the sense it will not go into formal alliances. But in many cases, it is more and more a country that seeks partners, let's say, more on the Western side of things. Right. And that would, of course, also uh, improve the potential for cooperation. Actually, you know, having been a very integral and important member of the non-aligned movement, India needs to ask itself, what is non-alignment? Because alignment is not what it used to be either. Yeah. So I think those of us who want to see a strong Indian international affairs and who believe that's overall a good thing, we hope to see an India that is ready to, you know, uh, speak first and and, and to present its own ideas and not to define itself as being non-something else, but rather being an active India that takes its own, takes the stage and and says what India wants and then the rest of us can relate to that. That comes with the political weight uh, that, you know, it's economic growth, uh, stronger political weight and I think this well, I know that this is a very interesting, ongoing discussion in India itself. What is India's identity on the world stage mm-hmm. in this very changed world? Norway, being a small, wealthy country, uh, a mid-sized economy its not a small economy. I mean, uh, other, you know, other countries would need to have uh, 40 million people to have the, the GDP that we have, if you look at international statistics, but still significantly smaller than India, is also a very internationalist player, and, and and we are well advised to un, understand and go deeper into what does actually India think and what the Indians think, because Indians think different things, of course, just like the Norwegians. But what is the discourse on India's role in the world, as India now takes an even more important role as member of the Security Council, together with us. And I hope that... Um, and in modern India can contribute to that kind of dialogue that we get better understanding of the of the internal discourse in India on, on, on its role on the world stage. Thank you very much. And indeed, that's part of the intention, I think, behind mm-hmm. the
0: modern India to enhance understanding in both countries. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you mentioned COVID. And of course, it's impossible to have a conversation uh, like this on any subject in, in December, November, December 2020 without discussing the COVID uh, and its implications. Uh, that triggers um, a question relating to interdependence. Mm. Because if there is one thing the, the pandemic has shown us, regardless of our ideology and geographical location and, and political point of departure, it is the depth of interdependence at the global scale. Mm. Whatever happens at the other end of the world impacts anywhere. And that's reality. Now, that's geographic interdependence, economic to a certain extent social, and not least, of course, health-related interdependence. However, on the issue of interdependence, my experience working in and with the United Nations system over the last decade and a half, non-stop more or less, is that the recognition of interdependence among the three subjects within the UN family, peace and security on the one hand, economic social development on the other, and human rights in the third dimension, these three areas and domains are to a great extent, and in my personal view, too much separate in the way we deal with them at the global level, in mm-hmm. the UN itself, but also at the national level. In other words, what happens in one domain rarely is discussed in another. And coming to the Security Council, and here I would like to refer to the point made by Uli Sending, who spoke earlier this afternoon, uh, where he pointed out how, first of all, business in general is crucial in many cases to the prevention and resolution of conflict uh, in terms of funding, in terms of creating jobs, uh, for example. Now, to what extent can Norway contribute to reducing the firewalls between these three domains in the UN family when we take a seat in the UN Security Council? well i, I
1: it, it's an extremely uh, important question, and I agree both with the intention of the question and with what Ulyakov sending just said because it is a it's a lingering challenge at the u n system that it is set up with these divisions of labor that very much reflects the 1945 perspective of the world rather than the 2020 perspective of the world. Of course, certain things have happened. We have had the development of... We have, the weight of human rights has rose with the Human Rights Council, for instance. The, 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 um, uh, there was an increased emphasis with the peace-building architecture, trying to make sure that after a physical conflict you... You remain seized on the matter also when you were moving out of a conflict. But still, it's true that these divisions are too stark. And I think that we know that the causes of conflict often have to be found in economic and social social area, in large disparities and grievances over difference and so on, Uh, not necessarily in the security field in a narrow sense, although the consequences play out there. And even the security types, and I used to spend much of my life in the security world, are also recognizing that... Even warm wars, real conflict, does not necessarily begin in the kinetic space, meaning what militaries control—the armies, navies, and air forces—but actually, uh, a modern conflict will typically start as a cyber conflict, uh, as, as misinformation, as manipulation of information, or as attacks, but at, at physical attacks, but via cyber attacks on water supply, and electricity system, and telecommunications, and so on, right. which typically is controlled by. By not only civilian but even private actors. Right. So, so in a sense, the the, the 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 military or the classical security approach to security is in a sense losing out on what is the trend line. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, traditionally, the military were ahead in technology development. Now, is typically the civilian sector and the military com- rushing after to copy what's being developed in, for instance, communication technology and, and so on. So, these in the re- in the real world out there, outside of the chambers. Of uh, in New York, uh, the world is, all these are blurred into one big mix. So I think that um, we we will not be able to reform the whole thing in two years at the Council but always remembering that these things matter. And again I think, you seriously think that this is something where we could align because India, which has had its own debates on inclusive growth, for instance, and you know, I remember some years ago, inclusive India was a slogan of the Indian government, because one understood that just growing on average, having a fast-growing GDP, doesn't help you much if, if you have this rising disparities that comes with it. And so, so the, the interrelationship between economic growth of the many and long-term political stability uh, is extremely important to, to understand. Increasingly, actually, even sort of some of the world-leading capitalists have started to understand that uh, too much discrepancy between rich and poor is actually bad for the economy. It's obviously socially bad, and obviously bad for social cohesion, but it's actually also bad for growth itself. So you need a much larger sort of middle-class uh, band uh, of people who are both producing and consuming at the same time and, and, and keeps the economy circulating. This is very different thinking from only 20 or 30 years ago, where there was a very strong idea that, you know, let the market do its job, we will economic growth, and eventually, by magic, it will be distributed. That was wrong. So I think these insights should also influence how we think about management of international relations and management of international conflicts at the Council.
0: Very true. I couldn't agree more. Uh, Now, to build on that, uh, I cannot have this conversation without referring to the 2030 agenda and the Sustainable Development Goals. After all, one of the pillars of the Modana India is to discuss sustainability. Now, in relation to what you just said, um, wouldn't the SDGs represent also a relevant framework, not only for the economic and social work of countries and the UN family and other multilateral agencies, but also even in the Council, to relate peace and security, conflict resolution issues, to the sustainability, not only ecological sustainability, but also economic and social sustainability? And would that be something Norway could take on as sort of a beacon of the relationship between sustainable development, peace and security?
1: Yes, and, uh, indeed. And Norway has said that these issues will be high on the agenda. Uh, I am from the opposition, but I agree with the current government that these broader issues of sustainability and climate has to be high on the agenda, also in the Security Council. And we could do even more. Actually, the Sustainable Development Goals agenda... is a a major success of the UN in in recent years. I mean, not because we fixed it, but because we were able to formulate something that practically all countries and most businesses and NGOs and civil sector actors agree on, you know, that the the, the big master plan of making a better world is to fulfil the... ambitions of the the 17 SDGs. And and, uh, uh, so I definitely think that that should also be a part of the security discourse. Um, And then we should be aware that the future is uh, renewable and circular and sustainable. The problem is we're not necessarily getting there fast enough. But the other problem is that that transition, which is going to happen rather fast in the coming few decades will also create winners and losers. I mean, for instance, if you are a major exporter of fossil fuel, you will be in trouble because people will use less. If you dominate the technology of uh, advanced electricity production from renewables, you will have an advantage. Um, it's very hard to explain the last 75 years without referring to the haves and haves-nots of oil. Imagine that oil becomes less important, but grids become more important. You will have very different power relations, and 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 that's overall a very good thing. But it also means that power will change, and when power changes, some people are more happy than others. So even these transitions that are very positive overall needs to be handled, and you will have see very so, so the agenda the the you know. We will have conflicts in the future as we've had in the past. What they will be about will be changing. And typically, a a universal rule that I've learned over many years working in international relations is that um, it's not the problem that causes conflict. It is the inability to deal with the problem. Because a challenge, a problem, a a common um, issue can lead in principle to two things. It can lead to cooperation or it can lead to dispute. Uh, and if you, if you have a well-managed international system, if you have good diplomacy, goodwill, you will actually transform a problem into a solution. But if you can't, you'll transform a problem into a dispute and a conflict. And we will have more and more cases going in both directions, and, and this is going to be essential to understanding the nature of security as we move forward in a rapidly changing world.
0: Thank you. I I do believe we're approaching the end of this conversation, but I have one final question. And where I'm trying to connect the dots a little bit, uh, because you you referred to in your speech or presentation earlier how, uh, in addition to the climate challenge um, and COVID, uh, which is very immediate, there is another huge uh, challenge that has taken on a new dimension over the last few years, a couple of decades, and that has to do with the increasing inequalities, uh, less so between countries more so uh, among and between people within the same country, or for that matter, transnationally. Uh, now, this brings me to my final remark, uh, where I tried to also relate it to the multilateral family, which includes not only the UN, but other agencies, the bank, the fund, the World Trade Organization, uh, which is a very powerful and strong instrument for multilateral cooperation, a rules-based multilateral international global trading system, which creates... Uh, winning at the big picture. The pie is growing through more efficient allocation of resources. However, the fallback and the sort of partly unfortunate consequence is also that it creates winners, but also losers. Mm. This many claim uh, is partly behind the backlash against globalization that we have been seeing over the last few years. Mm -hmm. Now, when you enter the World Trade Organization headquarters in Geneva, uh, the door is flanked by two goddesses the goddess of justice on the one hand, and the goddess of peace on the other. That refers to the fact that, in fact, the World Trade Organization headquarters was originally the headquarters of the International Labour Office, uh, the UN Specialized Agency for uh, Labour Issues. And that refers to the fundamental motto and uh, purpose uh, of the ILO, which is to uh, to cultivate justice. Now, the motto is, if you seek peace cultivate justice. Do you subscribe to that uh, observation, and do you think Norway can play on that
1: in the Council? Well, indeed. Of course I do. I'm mean, a social democrat. This is the essence, you know, that uh, the, the lowering inequalities is a key political goal, both because it is good in itself. Uh, for the obvious reason that it's a fairer world, but also because it is more peaceful, more stable, and actually promotes a more stable growth, uh, a sustainable growth. And I say sustainable both in an environmental sense, but also sustainable in a more narrow economic sense, that it's, you're more likely to continue to grow if you bring most of the people along. And you are so right in what you said earlier, that despite of the in itself positive news that discrepancy between countries have been reduced, uh, because uh, the traditionally rich countries did not get that much richer and the traditionally poor countries became middle income, uh, the internal distribution has become much worse and inequality has risen everywhere. So in the rich countries it rose because a lot of people fell off and fell from middle class and down and others got very much richer. And in poorer countries, because some people got much richer and took most, most of the growing pie and some people, other people remained poor. Even if absolute poverty has gone down, the discrepancies has grown. That is the absolutely evident source of a lot of social tensions. And it will, if it is not handled well, also have political effects, as we have seen uh, recently, where people vote for anti-globalisation movements, uh, you know, for politicians who promise uh, to distinguish between us and them and and to close the country and to start, uh, uh, you know, to to uh, protectionist uh, uh, policies, which, which we know overall from the 1930s is not the good solution. So you need to find ways to combine a, an, an open trading world with standards, labour standards and climate standards, environmental standards, but also uh, you know making sure that the externalities, as economists will say, are taken care of and, and put the price on, uh, rather than just sort of uh, gung ho, free for all, which, which didn't work. And I think if you want to save capitalism, uh, which after all is the fundamental system of most countries, even even the state capitalist countries are capitalist in essentially, including China. If you want to save capitalism, you need to deal do something with that. Um, well, India nor will not fix it, fix this in two years in the council. But to remember this main theme. uh, wherever you work on the nitty-gritty issues that come up in the Council, I think it's extremely important if you want to have some kind of red thread through the work that's been done at the Council. I think that was a
0: perfect uh, closing remark from your side. I would just uh, end by thanking you again for coming. And uh, without having consulted with Rina, uh, invite you to come back as soon as possible after we've taken the seat and hopefully, by then, we can meet in the same room also with other members of the panel and others of relevance who have this conversation continue. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Looking forward.